Welcome to Generously Speaking, a podcast series developed by Capital Development Services, where we hear from area philanthropists, foundation executives, corporate leaders, and others who share their experience, insights, and ideas on the nature of generosity and philanthropic giving. Here are your hosts, Alan Burroughs and Claire Jordan. In times of uncertainties and change, it's helpful to find examples of generosity that rise above the fray and remind us that we can all still do well by doing good. Over these past several months during the pandemic, we at CapDev have met dozens of people who reflect this joy of generosity and are happy to share them with you. That is why we started this podcast, to invite you into the many fascinating conversations we get to have by nature of our work. We want to give you, our listeners, a seat at the table by bringing thought leaders in the nonprofit sector directly to you, since you cannot always come to them. Our goal is to highlight generosity by speaking with those who can help share the stories of great philanthropy. In addition to the audio on our podcast recording, you can also access episode notes of these conversations on our website at capdev.com slash podcast. The phrase, to whom much is given, much is expected, describes our guest today and the foundation she works for. Mary Thomas is the Chief Operating Officer for the Spartanburg County Foundation, which serves Spartanburg, South Carolina, and surrounding communities. The foundation manages over $220 million in assets and has given over $160 million in its 75-year history. Founded in 1943 by textile giant Walter Scott Montgomery and seven of his colleagues, the foundation was the first community foundation in South Carolina and served as a model for future community foundations throughout the state and the South. Speaking of firsts, Mary Thomas can professionally also list many firsts. Growing up in a small community just outside Spartanburg, her work is a calling, and she has now been at the Spartanburg County Foundation for over 20 years, after stints at leading several nonprofits both here in the U.S. and in Zaire. Mary's firsts include being one of the first females to be ordained by the Rocky River Baptist Association. She was one of the first African-American and first woman to chair the Appella Board of the Spartanburg Regional Healthcare System, and she has been the first African-American to win the Council on Foundations' prestigious Robert Scribner Award for creative grant-making. Practicing what she preaches, Mary donated the $10,000 award to the foundation to establish the Mary L. Thomas Award for Civic Leadership and Community Change. Let's listen now to the conversation. Mary Thomas, welcome to Generously Speaking. Thank you. Well, we're excited about this conversation and the work you've been doing, not just in Spartanburg, but in South Carolina, but well beyond. So we're excited about this conversation. Tell us more about the Spartanburg County Foundation. Sure. Uh, The Spartanburg County Foundation was founded in 1943 by former textile giant Walter Montgomery Sr. This foundation is the first community foundation established in South Carolina And Mr. Montgomery, I'm told that when he was in his early 40s, he wanted to leave a legacy for this community. And he went up to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and visited the Winston-Salem Foundation. And he returned to Spartanburg and met with seven of his friends. And he said, you know, I want to leave a legacy and I want to do uh, something similar to what I saw in Winston-Salem. I want to start a community foundation. And so they pulled their resources together and they started the Spartanburg County Foundation. And a few years ago, we celebrated our 75th anniversary and we're still going very strong. And if Mr. Montgomery was here today, I think he would be uh, in awe of how that $10,000 has grown over time. And 
We're well over about $225 million in assets. I think I've read over $160-some million given away during that 75 years. So, yes, I think Mr. Montgomery would be quite proud <laughs> of the accomplishments that you and the folks at the foundation have done. Given that we're still sort of in this pandemic world, what has the foundation done to increase, to increase its impact during the pandemic? You know, it's interesting. No one could have anticipated a, a pandemic in the third month of 2020. We had uh, many of us that had planned uh, for, for great things to happen, uh, big, bold uh, ambitions and goals. When you're approaching the, the, the end of the, th- the first quarter, here comes a global pandemic. Well, thankfully, the Spartanburg County Foundation had previously spent about a year doing some strategic planning uh, with a group out of Seattle, Washington, the giving practice, Mark Sedway. And he came down in 2000, at the end of 2018, 2019, and we did some visioning. And uh, we had come off of our 75th anniversary and was celebrating 75 years of impact. And our board of trustees and staff began to think about what will the next 75 years look like? What will our legacy be? So Mark challenged us to think about a North Star. We'd never really considered what is our North Star. We had just revised our vision statement, mission statement. We have our five external values, our passing gear philanthropy, and all of our philanthropic capitals. That's what we deploy every day in our work, but we never packaged all of that to say this is our North Star. So when we considered our North Star and we looked at our our five pillars, which one focuses around infrastructure and our people plan. Uh, we have asset development, philanthropic services, and community leadership with very clear objectives and, and goals there. The pandemic was really an opportunity for us to live into what we were suggesting we could do, which really focused on how does the foundation use technology to advance our mission? Perhaps it becomes our secret sauce. How do we uh, become more effective in community engagement and and connecting our donors to the work we call our impact work, our community leadership work. So when the pandemic happened, certainly we had to go virtual like most people and technology became that secret weapon. You know, I'm an innovative person. I always have been. And I came up with an idea about doing these real talk forums on Zoom. And so the first real talk forum we did, we invited medical professionals to come and inform our community around the impact of COVID disproportionately affecting people of color, African-Americans, if you will. We had probably 150 or more people for the first one. So that was a success. So we just began doing real talk on issues and things that were important to the people in our community to help them navigate this global pandemic. So everything from health equity, some of the underlying causes that impact African-Americans who are navigating COVID. We had Dr. Gail Christopher came in from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, um, and we talked about racial healing because during the pandemic, we've also had this pandemic around race with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and everything that we are experiencing now in this country with the divisiveness of our, of our nation and race coupled with that. We're living in some tough times, so the way we've been able to address our work and achieve impact is through technology and focusing on issues that are top of mind for our, for our community. It's amazing, Mary. It's always 
call it divine, providential, how we said, but your alignment to the North Star in the advent of the pandemic and then the social equity and racial justice sort of scenario that's been going on. It's a truly gift that the foundation has done to that community because you've been that aligned during this time as well. So we applaud and commend the work of the foundation, especially as I understand it too, the foundation has established the Center for Philanthropy in the midst of this as well in the last year or so. Tell us some more about that focus effort for the Center for Philanthropy. Sure. Actually, one of our strategies within our uh, strategic plan was established for philanthropy. And so we set that objective and we did, uh, the pandemic was not even upon us at that time. And so, uh, you know, we had the groundbreaking the September before the pandemic hit. Our construction folks were already in the process of laying foundation, turning dirt, all of that. So um, we never had any stoppage in the workforce. But the Center for Philanthropy was built primarily for us to accomplish our community leadership work around convening, uh, building organizational capacity, thought leadership, grant making, everything that we do as a community foundation. The Center for Philanthropy allows us to be that thought leader and that center, I would call it that hub, because Spartanburg is really known as the hub city. The Center of Philanthropy we see as a hub for the community all members of the community, be it donors, nonprofits, just community in general to come together to consider how we can use data-driven solutions to change some of these problems that continue to persist. We don't want to take for granted that we live in this space of community leadership. A lot of foundations haven't gotten there yet. With that Center for Philanthropy, one of the things you just sort of intimated that, that its focus is community leadership and engagement. And that's a strong statement to make this time. I'd love to hear more about what are you trying to achieve with that? You know, over the past two decades, uh, the Spartanburg County Foundation has evolved. Once upon a time, we were pretty much a transactional foundation, which was very important at the time. But it was money in and money out, pretty much like a charitable bank. But as we have seen over time, the emergence of health legacy foundations and other types of philanthropies, it became important for the Spartanburg County Foundation to figure out how it could remain relevant, how we could remain um, a leader, if you will. And so we began looking for ways to step outside of our comfort zone and be more than a grant maker. I talked about the North Star. Many people, when you look at philanthropic capitals, a lot of people just think about the financial capital. But when we started to understand the power in using our intellectual capital, our reputational capital, our social capital, and our moral capital, and then you put in the financial capital, that's power. And we have been living into those capitals as part of our North Star, and and with persistence and with uh, intentionality, around um, engaging our community. Now we find ourselves living into this community leadership work. And I would suggest to you that the Spartanburg County Foundation is a forerunner in this space, knowing that we are more than a grant maker. We have said it over and over and over again. Boards of trustees have evolved and, and, and individuals have moved. You know, you have trustees that rotate on and off the board. And we have just been very persistent in sharing that message of what happens when you look uh, beyond the bottom line, which we know is important, but it's also important to bring people together 
from different walks of life who may share the same values, but they may get there a different way. That's our social capital. Our moral capital is when we're taking on issues that may not be popular, but there's no leadership there to uh, foster an environment where change can happen, but leadership is needed. So that's when we bring in our moral capital. And then, you know, we talked about being in existence for 75 years. So certainly there's a reputation there and we just hadn't lived in all of that. So this Center for Philanthropy, I mean, the community is excited. It's not just for Spartanburg. I'm certainly it's for Spartanburg, but we hope people around the region will see it as a resource to learn from what we've been able to accomplish over these many years, um, working across uh, the three sectors, the private, the public, and the nonprofit sector to bring about change or, or community improvement. We have seven trustees. They serve seven-year terms, uh, rotating in the chair. Um, and we've always had seven trustees from since 1943. We get a new one each year, and they are very committed to the mission of the work. Mary, would you mind circling back to, um, you mentioned data-driven solutions. Yes. An example of how you've been doing that recently. So let me tell you about uh, how we got there. Uh, The Spartanburg County Foundation in 1989, this is before I got here. I've been here since 98. But anyway, former trustee John Wardlaw wanted to find a way to help inform the decision making of our board of trustees. He was a data person. Uh, he, He loved to write white papers and think about what is possible when you unleash the power of philanthropy. So they came up with this um, publication called The Critical Indicators. The Critical Indicators was a measurement uh, document that looked at uh, issues around education, health, family, community. And when the report first came out in 1989, it didn't receive a very positive review, if you will, from the community. Because in Spartanburg, we have seven school districts and we have you know many, many different fire districts and Some of the school districts thought that we were trying to use that publication to consolidate schools. That wasn't the case. But despite some of the negative reviews, the foundation continued to persist and produce those reports every two to three years. And in 2006 is when the real transformative work started to happen because we no longer were just putting out a report for the the community to consume but we were intentional with partnering with the United Way of the Piedmont, our local United Way here. And we said we wanted to work together. The Community Foundation and the United Way uh, wanted to figure out how we could coexist in a space where we had shared goals and objectives. And we, we decided we would work together on this indicators project. So we came up, we took our critical indicators, and we decided to do something called Strategic Spartanburg. And Strategic Spartanburg was just an advanced version of the critical indicators. It had community goals, indicators, trends, and analysis of what was working, what was not working. And so we went with that for, and and we wanted a pretty book because the first book just had hard data. It's not something you want to pick up, but this book, we said, you know what? We're going to make sure that the cover is reflective of the county we serve that we have 10 goals that we share with the community across the three sectors. And before, we were only spending about $25,000 in producing the report, but with, with the Strategic Spartanburg, we were able to get public sector funders, private sector funders. The report became about $125,000 publication. 
I want to accelerate here because this could be a whole podcast on collecting data, but not just data, but what do you use with that data with community engagement? So we engage hundreds of individuals in our community around what we should measure. We had 180 indicators, but we couldn't measure all of that just because you had, you know, you had to have apples and apples, not apples and oranges. But the point here is that the community helped set the agenda for what we measured. So now, um, as we look to 2020, this indicators project has evolved completely. It used to be singularly the Spartanburg County Foundation. It was our intellectual property. We led it. We shepherded it for at least 15 years before we brought on the United Way and other partners. Today, there are eight partners around the table. It's the Spartanburg Community Indicators Project. We have done amazing work using that data to inform our community change um, efforts, whether it be adult literacy, teenage pregnancy, rates have gone down significantly here in Spartanburg, whether you're talking about educational attainment. We realized a few years ago that only 19.8% of our population age 25 and older held a post-secondary degree. Now, for some, that might be like, wow. But for us, being in a textile community uh, where that, you know, basically textiles was our industry or our economy. So what you have is the, is the result of the 19.8%. But thankfully, our local chamber, along with university representatives and educational and private sector individuals said, we're not going to be satisfied with an undereducated community. So they formed something called the 4030 Challenge. It was a Blue Ribbon Task Force that I happened to sit on. And I was sitting on that task force while at the same time, our board of trustees were, they were trying to figure out how do we improve the educational attainment of our citizens? So here you have one group over here saying that by the year 2040 or 2030, by the year 2030, we want 40% of our population aged 25 and older to hold a post-secondary degree. And over here, you have the trustees saying, how can we improve educational attainment? So the two uh, efforts converged and we incubated it. The Sparmer County Foundation incubated this plan for about 18 months. Uh, We visited the Stark Education Partnership over in Canton, Ohio, trying to figure out how do you fund a movement? that's going to change the culture and the mindset of your community. In in Canton, Ohio, they had four funders that endowed their effort. So I'm like, that's what we've got to do here in Spartanburg. So we came back and, you know, certainly the Spartanburg County Foundation, we were in, all in, as they would say at Clemson. But then we were looking for other funders. And the funders that we wanted, we didn't get it immediately. So our foundation decided to take a leap. And for us, it was a big step. But we initiated the first grant to establish the college hub of Spartanburg with $500,000. And so for about two years, they were running programs and decided that that was not the model that it should be in order to move this needle from 19.8% to 40%. So they changed their name to SAM, S-A-M. It's the Spartanburg Academic Movement. This program today, going back to data-driven solutions, is a Strive Together uh, partner. They just received a $6 million grant earlier this week to help continue to move the needle. 
They have five-star leadership within their organization. It is just an incredible example of what can happen when you look at data that looks so um, dire, so grave, but yet you say with the community's help and with the community's persistence and with financial resources, not just from Spartanburg, but from around the country, we can move the needle. And I will tell you that that percentage is ticking up. I think they're about 25, 26% at this point in time. We believe that if we continue to persist, we're going to get to the 40%. If not 40%, we're going to be close. I don't doubt that you will get there. And there are many other examples of data-driven solutions. Organizations come to us for grants. We look for the indicators that they're trying to move. If we're working on housing and if we're working on revitalizing a community, we want to know what the statistics are telling us in that particular neighborhood, the demographics, all of that helps to inform our decision-making. So again, data-driven solutions is where we want to be. Thank you for that, because what you are doing in sharing that example is really giving life to data, bringing it to life in a way through the book and through the work that people see and understand. And as you said, act on it through community engagement. You made it real. And Claire, what we've also done when you talk about making it real, these numbers, they reflect people. We're talking about people. So we have people with lived experiences that this data reflects. So we have engaged those individuals in the work. It's better for me to sit and listen to Stella talk about her um, life as a single parent with a stereotype label all over her that probably excludes her from any type of upward mobility. But when I sit and listen to her story and see that she's college educated, she just had some, you know, just had a little bad luck, if you will. But she has a lot to contribute to a larger community who's trying to impact others who might be in the same situation, but they may not have the same story. Can I piggyback on that to ask you about your story? Because I think you've got a story to tell, too, in your own journey. And I'm curious if, like the analogy of Mr. Montgomery and the $10,000 and how much that transformed in a little over 75 years, did you as a little girl foresee your career path going here? What what led you here? Well, listen, I am a country girl from Packlet, South Carolina. Packlet is a is a town. There's Packlet, there's Central Packlet, and there's Packlet Mills. And put together, probably there may be 1,500 to 2,000 people in that small town. Both my parents were ministers, so we grew up down in Packlet on a family farm. But we traveled all up. Uh, for people who are in the South, I-85, I-77 to Greensboro, Wilkesboro, North Carolina, Winston-Salem, Roanoke, Virginia, Galax. So we were preacher's kids traveling with my parents doing ministry, attending camps over there in Winston-Salem at Camp Betty Hastings. I mean, I have fun memories of how much we had, how much opportunity we had to get outside of our community. That's the key for what happened for us, my three sisters and I. That exposed you, the travel. Talk about what, what, what you got from that exposure. What did it show you? What did it enable you to be able to do? It showed me that there was a world bigger than that small town of Packlet. That, you know, in Packlet, people would call me Mary. But when I um, was going up to North Carolina, they said, your name is not Mary, your name is Mary. 
So you become a little more refined, a little more cultured, uh, just crossing the state line. Exposure, and this is what's lacking today with a lot of young people and individuals who live in neighborhoods and they never have a chance to go outside of their city block. I mean, I experienced this when I was running the Bethlehem Center as a young executive when I took young people up to camp out of the inner city of Spartanburg to a place called uh, Camp Asbury, which is in Greenville County, South Carolina. I remember young Timmy Moore saying, what, what's that? And there were mountains. They'd never seen the mountains. So things that we take for granted can help turn a person's life completely around. And I will say for me, it was exposure. My parents, uh, we traveled with them. And, you know, when I went to college, I went to Winthrop College in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I majored in French. And that was on purpose. One, because I made straight A's in French. But two, I saw it as my way out of Paglet, that I would be an ambassador to the United Nations. And I remember one day when I was finishing a bus route, when they would let young people drive a bus, a school bus, that was a prestige thing. I drove a school bus. But I had an opportunity to study in France. And that really opened my understanding and my uh, whole desire to be bigger than my community. When I say that, I'm saying live beyond the confines of what uh, your community might suggest. You know, I didn't see a lot of people of color in leadership in Packlet, but really I didn't wear those lens of color. I wore the lens of competency and preparation. And my dad put that in us, preparation, hard work, you know, whatever you do, do it, do it with the spirit of excellence. And that has carried me all of my career. So You know, when I graduated from Winthrop, I was recruited to teach French in District 7. They gave me the hardest schools. Well, I shouldn't say hard, but they were very complicated schools. They were inner city schools with predominantly African-American, but these kids were very smart. But I did that for about two years. And and then I learned about an opportunity to run an institutional ministry of the United Methodist Church, the Bethlehem Center. And the Bethlehem, I believe they have one in Winston-Salem, but the Bethlehem Center was started by the United Methodist women back in the days of the Great Depression because children were dying because they couldn't get proper immunizations. So the Bethlehem centers, when you travel around the country, you're going to find Bethlehem centers primarily in inner city black communities, and you'll find Wesley Rankin centers in Appalachia and poor white communities. So again, I'm from Packlet, Bethlehem centers in the inner city, I convinced the board at 24 that I could do this job. They get they allowed me a chance. And my first day on the job at the Bethlehem Center in the inner city was culture shock. I stayed at the Bethlehem Center for 11 years, building programs, building partnerships, building community, and helping to advocate and offer voice to those who needed a path forward, if you will. And so I did that for 11 years. And while there, I had a chance to spend three months in Zaire. This was right after the Rwandan War. And again, it was because of my work with women and children and the national um, board, the general board of global ministries out of New York invited me to lead a mission team over there to build a village for refugee children. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done because I was working in poverty But when I got to Zaire, I experienced the other side of poverty and the side of poverty that doesn't cripple your mind. You know, when I was in Africa, 
this was during a time when we were going through this fad as African-Americans. You know, you say you're you're colored, you're black. Now we're talking about we're African-Americans. And I, when this was the African-American shift. I wouldn't go there. I'm like, what are we doing here? But when I spent those three months in Zaire, I learned about my culture in a way that I had never been exposed. I learned about the beauty of the African people, the intelligence of the African people, the respect that they have for their elders and the fact that men marry the love of their lives and have these children. And so I embraced my African culture and I came back and I'm African-American. I had my African garb on and everything. But my point here is that the opportunity that I had to spend those three months in Zaire it really emboldened me even more to not be afraid to take on a challenge, to not be afraid to sit at the table with anyone uh, who has a passion uh, for, for people and for community. I returned back to Spartanburg and not long afterwards, I was invited to join the foundation. And so that's my journey here. And when I came here, I'm telling you, Claire and Alan, I was ready to go back to the chaos of the Bethlehem Center because philanthropy was like in this beautiful package, big, pretty bow. Everything was so organized and so put together. And I came out of an environment where whatever was in the hat, you just dealt with. As my dad would say, whatever it took to make the pony trot, that's what you did. But I'm over here in this foundation and and I'm, I'm about to go crazy. I'm thinking, what am I going to do here? And so I remember having a conversation with the president at the time was John Dargan. And I said, John, I said, I'm so grateful that you all gave me this opportunity. But quite honestly, I feel like I'm a, I, I have, I'm doing like an a administrative role. But they gave me my wings and we began to create and um, innovation. They allowed us to be innovative. And here we are sitting in the Center for Philanthropy. It's a long journey. And I appreciate your sharing it with us because slight aside, but I want to share something with you about Africa because of your mention of Zaire. I just leaned over and grabbed this book that I just read recently, The Dragons, The Giant, and The Women. Have you read it? Uh, I have not. It took place in about that time frame, and it is this woman's journey. Uh, who's, she's now in the U.S., but it is her memoir of her life growing up in Liberia during about the time frame that you were in Zaire. Being formed in that way and having that understanding of who you are has given you so much confidence as it did for her, I think, the yes. author of that book. So I'm curious also to relate that to um, something you mentioned in your strategic planning work about what will be your legacy. Because not only does the foundation have a legacy, but Mary clearly has a legacy. And I want to refer back to something that's in your bio, actually, on your website about the Mary L. Thomas Award for Civic Leadership and Community Change. Clearly, those words, civic leadership, those have, uh, they resonate for people yeah. in, in specific ways. Those were chosen intentionally. Can you talk about that within the context of your legacy? Well, you know, uh, that's a great question. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, and I've said this many times that the work I do, I don't do it for the applause. I do it for the cause. And I'm not trying to make that, I'm not trying to say that to be, you know, a poet, but it's just the truth. When I get up each day, I'm a person of faith. I don't apologize for that. That's who I am. That's at my core. So whatever I do, I do it on purpose. I'm getting up to make a difference. I grew up in a family 
And I come from a background where my grandparents were farmers. If they had food, everyone had food. They cared for the community. I saw that as a child. I saw my dad pick up hitchhikers. Now, he can't do that today, but he picked up people. We had folks in our homes. And that's just the kind of that's the environment I grew up in. So when I applied my, my skills and talents to work, and then let me just back up here. And as a child, my sisters and I, we had to, in church, we had to sing. We were singers. I mean, I'm, you know, it was almost like we were in a circus or something. So the confidence comes from how we were raised, how I was raised. But of this award, I remember early in my career at the foundation, I would attend the Council on Foundations annual meeting. And one of the highlights of the meeting, of the annual meeting, was to sit there and, and hear them announce the Robert W. Scrivener Award winner. And I remember sitting there as a young executive, young you know, leader in philanthropy, and see these thought leaders stand up there and receive their award and have these words to share. And I'm thinking, man, it must feel good to be recognized for your innovation and, and your work. And so probably after I had been here at the foundation for almost 10 years, in 2003, when we were experiencing a downturn in our economy, we were losing money in the stock market like most, like all other foundations. And the board was like, what are we going to do? We don't, our money, our portfolio, we're losing money. And I'm thinking, well, I know how to raise money. That's what I did before I came here. So I pitched an idea and I was sitting on some national boards also with the Council on Foundations. So I'm meeting these national foundations. And so I remember saying to the board, I believe I can leverage some outside funding to help us do some creative work, building the voices and building the people that we're trying to serve. So there was an initiative called Strengthening Voices. It was all about organizational capacity, but it was also about building the capacity of the individuals who were benefiting from the funding that these programs were receiving. And it was built on the premise that if you give a person a fish, they'll eat for a day. If you teach them the fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. It took me almost a year to convince the board to invest in this idea because I had identified the William Randolph Hearst Foundation out of New York as a potential funder. And they loved the idea and the concept. And I'm thinking, man, we got it. But then I remember having a conversation with Leisha Cravo, who was the program officer there in New York. She said, Mary, we love your idea, but the board wants you to get other funders to believe in this. And I'm thinking, y'all going to make it complicated for me. Now I've got to go find other funders. So anyway, this was in Dallas, Texas at a conference when she told me this. So I said, okay, I've got other friends at Foundation. So I went over and talked to um, my uh, pal who's retired now, Gladys Washington with the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation. So William Randolph Hearst was interested in the organizational piece. I talked to the Mary Reynolds Babcock about the individual part of this. And so I shopped this to Gladys and I said, Gladys, this is what we're trying to do. Is this something the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation would be interested in? She says, Mary, yes, but we're only interested in the real folk. I'm like, well, who are the real folk? She says, these are the individuals who live in communities and they are accountable to the leadership in those communities. I said, okay, okay, I get that. So we went to work on identifying nonprofits that could benefit from organizational grants from the William Randolph Hearst Foundation and individuals who would be clients, if you will, of those organizations 
for the Mary Reynolds Babcock. And I created what we call the Grassroots Leadership Development Institute. And again, because of this innovation, the chairman of the board at the time, along with those funders, nominated me for the William for the uh, Robert W. Scrivener Award. One day I was coming back from lunch and the president called me into his office and he said, Mary, we just got a phone call. You just won the Robert W. Scrivener Award. I said, yeah, right. It took him a minute to convince me that I got that award. And so it came with $10,000. And I always knew, I always knew that if I was fortunate enough to get that award, that I was going to turn around and give it back to the community foundation. That was my money, my prize money. I flew up to uh, Pittsburgh and all of our trustees, they flew up there on private planes to support me and to receive that award. I committed to give it back to the Community Foundation to create a legacy of perpetual leadership of those who don't normally have a seat at the table, but given a chance, they can make a difference. They announced this award at our annual meeting that year with, with about 400 of our donors. And I said to the donors that night <clears throat> that if Mr. Walter Montgomery could establish the Spartanburg County Foundation with $10,000, surely I could do so. Uh, I could start a fund with $10,000 with their help. So that fund grew to $150,000. And the board, they're the ones who, who established the Mary L. Thomas Award because of this gesture and this generosity. And each year now, for the last, what, almost 15 years, we have identified individuals in our community who are flying under the radar, doing their work, whether it's helping the homeless helping special needs children, and we give them a grant of $5,000 out of that award. My legacy is, is, you know, leadership, bringing others along, connecting people to the right resources, and just getting it done. All very real, Mary, and I think we could talk with you all day. I think I would add generosity to your legacy, Mm -hmm. because what you did with that $10,000 was generous and Mm -hmm. magnified. Um, And we always like to end our conversations on these podcasts by asking you to share an example of great generosity and that you just did without even being asked, but maybe you have another example you'd like to share. But I think I want to go back to my grandmother, Ella Mae Coe. We call her uh, Grandma Coe, but her name was Coquina Thomas. She didn't have a college degree. She didn't even have a high school diploma, but she was one of the smartest women I ever knew. And I remember I would leave work sometimes and just go down there to my grandmother's house and sit on her front porch and just listen, listen to her life lessons. And I would watch her give, whether she was giving her 50 plus grandchildren a brown bag of candy cane, oranges and apples at Christmas, or whether she was packing a basket to take to some person on our road, Jerusalem Church Road, a basket that would like a care package to help them in their time of need. This woman was a giver to anyone, regardless of their race, their gender, their denomination. She didn't care. If they were a child of God and all people, in her opinion, are children of God, she was always giving. That's just something that has resonated with me. Certainly my parents were the same way, but To have the opportunity to be in your grandparents' presence, and particularly with my grandmother, whether she was making a quilt and giving it away for someone to be warm, that's one of the greatest examples that I could share in this particular setting 
of what I would see as generosity, that you don't have to have a million dollars to be generous. Generosity comes from your heart. From one preacher's kid to another, I completely understand. I hear you. I learned how to read the Bible sitting on my grandfather's lap as he preached just to me. And and you don't forget those lessons. You've been very generous to share all of this with us, and we look forward to sharing it broader, too. Mary, thank you so much for your time to be a part of Generously Speaking. You have been an incredible agent of change, and to that we are all grateful. I think you've inspired, hopefully, those who are listening today that community foundations, as a broader term, are not just financial capital, but they are social capital agents and moral capital agents. So we are grateful how you and the Spartanburg County Foundation have set that up. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Generously Speaking, a podcast series developed by Capital Development Services, where we hear from area philanthropists, foundation executives, corporate leaders, and others who share their experience, insights, and ideas on the nature of generosity and philanthropic giving. Look for our podcast episode notes at capdev.com. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn.